Hello, and welcome to Objects in This Rearview, the podcast where men discuss the paths our lives take and what we hope to see on the road ahead. I am your host, Travis Montez. In this episode, I interview New York City-based community leader and activist Julio Pena III. Julio is a member of his local community board, on the board of directors of two community nonprofits, and an elected district leader in Brooklyn. On top of all of that, his day job consists of supporting after-school programs in Red Hook and East New York. Julio has spent the last 23 years working in the educational and nonprofit field. In this episode, I talk to Julio about service, community, activism, and how to stay hopeful in a challenging, divisive political climate. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. This is Objects in This Review. Welcome, Julio. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I should tell the people Julio is one of my favorite humans. I have known him for 20 years. Has it been 20 years? It has been 20 years. I met you 20 years ago this summer. So thank you for being here. When I came up with this idea for this podcast, you were one of the men that I really, really wanted to talk to, particularly because of what you're doing right now. Can we spend a little bit of time unpacking sort of like the complex web of local politics in New York. What is a district leader and what do you do? I'm very excited to talk about that because it, it's it's a very important role that I'm, uh, I am embarking on in what I do. A district leader is a party position with the local Democratic uh, Party. There are district leaders in all five boroughs. And essentially, because everyone knows about like the you know, the DNC, like the, the the large Democratic Party, and then there are state Democratic Party. I'm a district leader at, in the Kings of Kings County, right? Um, and mm-hmm. I represent my assembly district, 51, which is Sunset Park and Red Hook. And essentially what we do is like we have the care maintenance of our Democratic Party in our district. But what our like main role is because everything in New York is very bipartisan, and I'm using air quotes, bipartisan, our main role is, you know, we're supposed to be recruiting poll workers for the Board of Elections and to make sure like poll sites are staffed. We, when it comes to our judges and a judicial system, we're supposed to be like vetting judges and making sure that they're adequate and that they're folks of importance. And I see your eyes going up uh, because I know, you know, Travis, you work very intimately with the judicial system. And like, there are other things that I do, like outside the scope of the, of the role, like I'm out like recruiting folks to make sure like people are registered to vote, educating people on uh, ranked choice voting last year, which was a big change of the way people were voting and like making sure people know about like advocacy issues in the community on legislative things and like making sure our Democratic Party is working for everyday people and not like their own self-interests. And it's an elected position, correct? It is an elected position. It's supposed to be an elected position. Well, why do you say supposed to be? Because it's a it's a not well-known position. What tends to happen is people tend to resign from the position. And then because of the intricacies, they will, the other district leaders will appoint or themselves elect the replacement and then that person serves the the remainder of the term and then just like any other position i have to collect petition signatures for this position and if i have no challenger then i run unopposed and i like no one ever sees my name on a ballot and so the district leaders that happens often i would guess very often but this is not your own like this is not your day job you do like got into this on top of your job. And so talk about your actual, your career. 
yeah. And I'll just say, you know, this is an, it's an unpaid volunteer position. That was, was um, going to be my question. Yeah. And, you know, so my, my, my day job uh, that pays my bills, you know, I'm a senior division coordinator for a large nonprofit in New York City. And, you know, I've been with the agency for almost 15 years now. And, you know, I support after school programs, city funded after school programs in Red Hook in East New York. You know, we've been through a lot the last couple of years, given the pandemic, working in person when, you know, a lot of people were working at home in front of a, on the sofa. What are, what's the importance of after school programs in the communities that you, that your programs serve? Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when kids are in school during the day from, you know, eight to, to three, from three to three to six, you know, families work from nine to five. Right. And we provide a place for kids and, and young people to be safe and stay while parents are, are working because traditional work schedule is not eight to three, it's nine to five. And, you know, some people think of after school as just like free childcare, but it's a lot more than that, right? You know, we not only provide safe spaces, but, you know, we do literacy, homework help, STEM, team building. Like we have, act, like we work on curriculum, right? Like we do a lot of different activities with young people. And it's, you know, not just after school programs, it's like community centers. It's, we work in NYCHA buildings for cornerstones. Like we have a lot of different models that we work with and it's, it varies greatly depending on the contract, but it's- And for people who don't know what NYCHA, NYCHA is public housing in New York City. Yes, New York City Housing Authority. And it, it's very, depending on the, the type of program and how it's funded, it can really vary the, the type of services that the, the young people get. But it, at and the how many kids it, would you say you serve a year? Ooh, I mean, last year, probably close to a thousand in, in maybe Brooklyn. So let me say that, and I mean this as a compliment. I hope that you take it as this because it's absolutely what I mean. When I met you 20 years ago, I should tell people I rented an apartment from your mom and when you were a baby and that's sort of how I first came across this angel of a human being. Just a wee, a wee gay. A, wee, a little gayling. I don't even think you were out then. Uh, I think, I think I was. Maybe. Because I was like, I was ending law school. You were just, the sh- I experienced you as shy. Your work in education has sort of always made sense to me because education is, was always sort of like a thing that I got was important to your family. I never saw you in the political realm, like as a politician. And I say that because like, you're not someone I think of, the politicians I know are very interested in power. That's not something that I think is important to you. So I'm when I see you in this realm, it's, I love seeing it. I love seeing this side of you, but it was surprising for that reason. And also the timing, because I don't think there's ever been a more contentious time in New York politics. And I don't even mean that like Republican Democrat. I mean, like within the Democratic Party, it just all seems so contentious. So I sort of think of you as this very sweet guy going into this like filthy world, but y'all got a crew. And so it was like a very interesting time to watch you go into that world. So I guess my question is like, how did you go from being like this educator and like that being your job and then entering into this world of politics as an activist and as an elected official and like what was what did that take and that was a a, a interesting journey for for me as well because i never never thought that i would be where i am today right like it, for me it was i was doing all this work in in my, like my professional world and and i thought about like i didn't feel like the 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 politics and the democratic party itself was really representing the 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 work in the in the community and and like uplifting that the, that kind of work in your community is sunset park brooklyn which was like when i lived there it was mostly specifically puerto rican mexican but a latino community and you grew up there 
absolutely born and raised here. Um, and, you know, I started getting more involved in like the actual Democratic Party, like, you know, what we it's called like the Kings County Democratic County Committee, like the very local Democratic Party. And I just found like it was very hard to get involved and like they make it very difficult. And for me, it was it, it shouldn't be so inaccessible to for anyone to access one elected leaders and two like to to gatekeep the way that things that should be accessible and to make things a a accessible for me like after uh president obama left office his farewell speech he said something that was very impactful for me he said you know if if you don't like the way things are happening in your community grab a clipboard get some signatures and run for office and like i took that to heart and that's exactly what i did right like i figured out and i you know through some organizations how like to access these local offices and i grabbed a clipboard and i started collecting some signatures and i ran for office and i ran for this the, these positions for county committee and district leader and it, you know it wasn't easy it was very hard like i've had like people call my my job to try to get me fired like i've had like Why? threats because it, it it's all about like power and gatekeeping and about like intimidation right and about because right. you would think that that would come from people who are not on your like within the democratic party there's sort of like this resistance and opposition particularly i think my perspective is there's this super resistance to people who are labeled progressive we do not want to see you folks up in here talking about your hoo-ha we do not want to see it get out of here tell me about sort of like that first process of like running that first getting that first election under your belt i mean i was kind of like in shock that all of these, you know, people like voted and elected me and then figuring out like, okay, what, 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 what do we do now? Right? Like, um, and I was super grateful that I was elected with a group of people that I was connected to and like, I was not by myself. And, and they were also first time folks. For, yeah. First time, first time district leaders in, in other parts of the borough, you know, North Brooklyn in, in Gowanus. And Why do you think that happened at that time that so many people were like running for office for the first time and so many people were responding to that sort of progressive message? I, you know, I think it also it has a lot to do with the 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 time it was, you know, 2020. It was like a couple of months into the pandemic. I think people were really reeling from that one, the shutdown and two, just like really seeing how the pandemic laid bare a lot of what was going on in our community and also like what had been going on and people not really seeing and also like how the democratic party just really wasn't actually listening to people so for me it was for for and for other folks just like this is what we can actually do and to help support our our neighborhoods and our community for and i say the six of us because it was six of us the the six of us who were newly elected were able to use our collective voice you know even though it was just six we were able to to bring other folks into that kind of a coalition to actually, you know, make some noise and and this this shit is kind of like messed up, right? And like I think people lose like you you know, you get New York has this reputation of being this liberal place. And like at the federal level we tend to like go blue and I guess even as state level. But we lose that outside of New York City, 
we are a largely red state. Even within the city, there are these swaths of red. And I say that to say our blue isn't like the bluest of blue. It's like just no. bluer. It's purple. It's like a really strong crimson. Like it's purple. I live in Bay Ridge and I'm like, this This is Trump country. It's like shocking. It's shocking compared to the reputation this city has. And I bring that up to say like, it just feels like local politics is super divided. Is that accurate? I, I don't want to say it's super divided. I, I want to say that it is, you know, we, we say that the Democratic Party is very like a big tent. And I think that that is it's true and that it varies. But I think that's because we get stuck in talking at each other and not we don't do a good job of actually listening to each other. And I think that is our, our biggest problem. We don't actually listen. We, we talk too much to each other and not listening. Our biggest failing is... We, we're not actually sitting down and getting to the root of the actual systemic issues, particularly at the local level. And we're kind of seeing that really play out in a lot of particularly the more local we go. And and it's really frustrating because it's like, you know, for me personally, like all we want to do is like get a lot of the local issues and advocacy issues like solved for, for everyday folks. And like, I don't really care about who has the power. I really want to make sure people have the tools to be successful. You know, only because of you have I sort of like been looking, you know, I think I've become more aware of like what decisions get made at the local level and then like what sort of decisions I've have input in as like a citizen. If you just like show up to community board meetings, which is even easier now that most of them are virtual, it's like insane amount of like who has a liquor license like like all like all those things sort of like matter um and i don't think people realize how much power and decision making they have influence over at the local level which i think is probably by design what's something that you wish you had known before going into this position i've i've been asked this question several times yeah i i really wish i knew how emotionally draining it it was going to be as a district leader we have to attend a couple like several executive committee meetings so it's a meeting of all the district leaders of, of in brooklyn and there have been some really toxic meetings where things have been said that were very inappropriate and very hurtful as you know as a queer person as a, a latina person um, as a person of color and really made me question a lot of like my own like feelings, my beliefs, like why why I ran in the first place to the point where like I, I considered whether I wanted to run again. And what I tell people going into this, because I've you know talked to people who thought about running and I, and I said like, hey, you need to make time for, for lots of self-care. And I really wish I knew that going in. Which I'm going to say is not something you're great at. It's not something I'm great at. Um, it's something I'm getting a lot better at. It's really hard. Yeah, you're like a you're like a caregiver, but you're except to yourself. You're like the most generous human I've ever known. Julio took me to my first Comic-Con, folks. I did. I he is he is that generous nerd friend, that generous geek friend. Um, and boy, did we have a podcast for you, Julio. Um, geek Force, I think you would love. But like, yeah, like that's not... I'm glad that that's on your radar because, yeah, it looks... Just following your Twitter is stressful. I'm just like, how is sweet Julio dealing with this world? What's the best part of serving this way? The best part is... Um like actually connecting with people and, and making, I know it's like super cheesy, but like 
actually making a difference and doing things that matter and impact people. Like I'll give you like very two specific examples. Like uh, just this past week, like I registered uh, a new voter and like that's one new voter that's actually going to make an impact in, in an election in this June election. What like eat, like regardless if they vote for me or vote for anyone, like they're going to be making a difference in this community. They're going to be participating. They're going to be learning about the process. Right. And that's, that's important. And two, you know, uh, when I, when I ran two years ago, um, and this is what during lockdown and I was alone in my apartment and I was making phone calls before I was elected, I had a 45 minute conversation with someone who had just lost their job, didn't get unemployment yet. And, was just really didn't know how they were going to pay bills. And I li- literally sat there in silence and this person was just venting. He was essentially like almost crying. And, you know, I was able to provide him some resources and, and we spoke for a little while after that. And then maybe two months later, this, you know, gentleman comes into my building because uh, I, I have a roof deck, a roof deck in my, in my building and someone introduces me to him. And as soon as I hear his first name, I says, I say, I say, wait, are you? And then I, last night I say his last name. And, and I said, we spoke on the phone and it was the same gentleman that I spoke with. And I started crying because I got really emotional because of, I met this man in person and, and then he started crying because it's like we connected and it was just that I was able to meet him in person. And like, he, he thanked me because like, the resource that I gave him was actually really helpful to get him unemployment. And for me, like that was a really impactful, impactful conversation. And just the fact that I was able to do that was just a really meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. You're the real deal, Julio Pena the third. Um, you believe I really you were one of those people who really believes in the system. And you also love Brooklyn. I don't know anyone who loves where this is true of most Brooklynites. They love where they're from. You can always tell them no matter where you meet them in the world. But you love you some Brooklyn. And so I want to talk to you about your upbringing a little bit. I knew your mom. She was my landlord for like five years. One of the nicest. Uh, it was like having living. It was like living at home. Um, so let, tell people like how you grew up and where you grew up. Tell people about your neighborhood. Yes, I am a born and raised Brooklynite. I, I just I can't even like I don't even know where to begin. Like it, it's so, you know, everyone talks about the like what it's the amazingness of, of Brooklyn, but, and of like just Sunset Park in general. But what I just love about my, this neighborhood is that being here is I've been able to see like the amazing, the amazing like change of like, it was, you know, when I was young, it was a predominantly Puerto Rican and Dominican community. And I, you know, as I've gotten older, eighties and nineties, eighties and nineties, I I'm throwing out my, my age, eighties and nineties. It was predominantly Puerto Rican and Dominican. Best time to be alive. Best time to be alive. And, you know, as I gotten older, it's shifted to predominantly uh, Mexican, Central American and Asian community. And like, but what really the constant has stayed, what has stayed the same is that it is still a family and immigrant community some beautiful mom and pop shops and like it is for me this community has always felt and has always stayed home and when i talk to people you know new and old who have been here is that they feel so welcomed and comfortable yeah, in this community that's absolutely true it was my first my first growing up my first apartment was there and it felt like um 
I loved it the second I stepped onto the block. Um, I'm from the country, so I had no concept of like brownstone lined streets. Um, but it was like when my sister came to visit, she's like, it's like Sesame Street. Like that's what it sort of like makes yeah. people who didn't grow up. And it was just a wonderful, like I like wonderful neighbors. You was in everyone's business. Um, literally. Literally. It was great. It's a great neighborhood. Were your parents both into education? So my uh, my mom was a school secretary uh, for most of my uh, like high school and middle school and I think almost elementary school. Um, and uh, so she worked in the education system. Uh, my dad, uh, before he passed... I just had vague memories of her tutoring students for some reason. She did, actually. Uh, she did work with a couple of young people in at home for a while, but it wasn't like a, something she did like officially. It was like some like family friends or something. And, you know, my dad, before he passed, was a hospital administrator at the local hospital at Luther Medical Center. Uh, now it's NYU uh, Brooklyn, but before it used to be called Luther Medical Center. And anyone from Sunset Park will still call it Lutheran, but now it's NYU uh, Langone. As, a, NYU as everything is. As everything is. And you grew up in this beautiful brownstone. Siblings? I have uh, four uh, awesome sisters, and one of them is my twin sister. Um, and everyone gets super surprised when I say that, uh, but she is my twin. So you're the only son? I am. What's that life like? What's growing up that life like? Only Puerto Rican son? So when exactly so when I was younger, I kind of like always wanted a brother because I always felt like very isolated. And you were stocked up on sisters. I was super stocked up on sisters. But as I got, I've gotten older. I've really have come to appreciate my sisters are are like really amazing and all very different, independent, and unique. I mean, very independent. And I also really and I'm. Like, I'm very spoiled because I'm the only boy. And I'm glad Travis that you can is- admit that. I'm glad you can admit that. I didn't know if I would get you. I didn't know if I would get you to say that on the record. I, you do not want your sisters to listen to this episode. I didn't know if oh, I would get know. you to admit that. They know. Great. They know I'm I know very they spoiled. know. I know they know. I don't know if they know you would admit it, but that's great. That is yeah. wonderful that you and own you know, that. and I, I will also admit I'm probably my mother's favorite child, although she will probably never admit it. She has to say my mom too. My mom's like, I love all my children the same. Okay, whatever. Exactly. I'm it's probably totally because I'm, I'm still the closest. She's obsessed closest with me. My mom. You're the closest by. You said. Yeah, because I, I still yeah, live also, in the community. Well. You're also the most alike. I am. I, I, and it's also very disturbing how, in some aspects, I'm very much like my mother, and I have to catch myself sometimes. I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what am I doing? And then in other aspects, I'm, I'm very, I'm not like my mom. But what was coming out like for you? Because I feel like I knew, like, I wasn't like gonna ask at that time because it's like I don't know what his journey is. You don't want to respect his journey. And then you were dancing with my boyfriend at my birthday party. So I figured, oh, it must have happened and it must have been fine. Yeah. Uh <laughs> <laughs> my journey was weird because I I felt like at one point it, it felt like a little bit like a like a light switch where at one time one time I was very much in the closet and then a day later I wasn't. That's exactly how it felt. And I lived upstairs from you, so I can't even imagine. Yeah. You know, I came out when I was uh, old. I don't know if it was like older, but I think maybe 20 or 21. You know, it was also 
maybe 2002, 2003, definitely after high school. I, you know, I absolutely knew way before, like maybe in the mid 90s, late 90s, but I didn't come out publicly until after high school. It very much definitely felt like a a light switch and, and just, it was still very difficult for me to to acknowledge like that side of of me like that facet i mean it's taken me still a very long time to just be comfortable in my own skin and i've you know i've said this a lot to other people and it, and i think it's just also because like i haven't met very many queer latina men or masculine men or just that that i can also identify with and that was it wasn't until like I, I got older that I just really started being more comfortable just expressing, you know, who I was and just learning my own journey. Probably like I've, I, I've said this many times, I felt like I've had like five midlife crisis, crises, but it, it really just has been uh, an experience just learning about um, my own kind of like queerness. And how, how is, how's your family been? They seemed awesome. They've been kind of amazing. Uh, I don't necessarily think that I have like actually sit down and besides my mom, I don't think I've actually sit down and and, like had like a coming out conversation with my family. It was just very much like they just knew Mm. organic. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel like you gunkle better than anyone else that I like. I definitely have taken some gay uncle tips from you. You you, you gay uncle very well. You know, I I don't know if children are in my cards. I I I I've knew I kind of I want children, but I don't know if it's in the cards. Why? But why? Uh, <laughs> why? I love kids. I, I love okay. children, All but right. I absolutely adore my nieces and nephews. Yeah, you're obsessed with them. I am obsessed with them. Yeah, I, I don't like kids and I have no desire to parent whatsoever, but my nieces and nephews are amazing. I'm obsessed with them. They're the only kids I'm interested in. When people start talking to me about their kids, I'm like, oh God. All right. All right. I like here other we go. people's kids too. See, because you're you're like a sweet, sweet, sweet angel. Um, I guess that's a ne- a great way to transition. So kids may not be in the cards for you, but what is what is next for you? I don't know, uh, mm-hmm. and that that is a little that's terrifying. My favorite answer. Um, people have asked me that, like, you know, particularly, you know, as as I'm like gearing for like re-election right now and you know because mm-hmm. i have to run every two well, years let me ask this, like, why run again because i've you know done some really great work this in this last two years and um one thing that i'm really proud of is like we removed the gender requirement for people to run for a county committee um Tell people what that nonsense is so previously if you wanted to run you had to identify as either male or female and that excluded a whole um, group of folks, of humans, you know, transgender because they wanted to keep it balanced. They wanted to keep. Yeah. Right? Is that- it, so it was a rule instituted in the 30s that to include to make sure that that women were included in the the Democratic Party because previously it was just men. So it made sense for a while, but it it really excluded transgender and gender nonconforming uh, folks from participating in the, the process because um many did not identify as other male and many did not identify as female and they could not run. And when they sued, they 
lost. And then the judge said, like, you, like, this is, this doesn't qualify. Like, you, you can't, um, they dismissed it, but it's like, this is, this is wrong. Like, you need to change right. your rules. Um, right. In New York so, City. In New York City, in New York State, like, y'all need to fix this. You know, so I, I was part of uh, the task force that really pushed to, to change the, the, that party rule and like we have a lot more things that we need to change like we need to make things more accessible more transparent and get more people involved and like the hostility that i was talking about before like that that's got to go that's not how our democracy should be operating would you say is one way you had to like change to step into this role as district leader i need to be less sensitive really yeah uh i i feel like i you know, was taking things a little bit too, like, to the heart and a little bit too hurtful. And like the criticism, some of the criticism, you know, I've gotten some like mean tweets, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, some of those tweets that you see on like, I, I forget what um, late night show, uh, but like, I've gotten some of those, right? No, I've read they're mean. They're, they're mean. New York, New York local politics is New York local politics happens. A lot happens on Twitter. A lot, it's a shocking how much information about New York local politics is on Twitter and how uh, absolutely... And the only thing that it reminds me of is sort of like high school bullying that goes online. That's what it looks like. People are just... Sometimes you don't even know what they're responding to. They're just like name-calling, insulting. How did you get this job? You ought to be ashamed. Like it's, no, Sometimes there's no context. Um... And I find it, so I imagine you also must find it surprising how everything can be controversial. You can be like, I like ice cream and someone will How could you disrespect wi- Pi like that? Right. That's so disrespectful to Pi. Why would you do that? Right. So yeah, I guess being less sensitive, less responsive to that stuff makes sense. All right. Well, th- I've loved talking to you, Julio. I want to ask you my favorite question. Um, my last question, which is, uh, what's in your what's in your rear view, Julio? Uh, my rear view is my younger self that I kind of miss, but I am I'm also I'm I'm excited to to reconnect with. Mm. I talk to a lot of queer men, and I like to ask them this question also. It's like, what do you think your teenage self would think of you now um i think your teenage self would be very proud of you and like shocked so there was a like that um a tiktok trend right that people were like talking to their if you say like, so i'm very old <laughs> uh, i'm I'm, a, I'm kind of obsessed with tiktok and like it got me through um the, the pandemic. pandemic but and i really thought about that like what would my younger self think of of me now and I, one, I don't think he would like be able to see or like recognize the person I am today um, because my younger self was so, is so different of who I am today. Because I I think about like 23 year old me was so like lost and confused and like had no idea, terrified of the world. And then, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm still very much terrified of of like the unknown, but I'm like less afraid to try something, right? Um, 
but or more afraid not to try something yeah as i get into my you know i'm solidly middle-aged at this point so like my midlife crisis has been spectacular i mean this is probably a function of it this is this is it more than i am afraid of like the unknown i'm afraid of leaving something undone or untried that's like what keeps me up at night is like i haven't done that i've not written that novel i've not said that thing i've not forgiven that person i've not healed that relationship that i'm more afraid of that stuff at this point in my life than like messing up or looking like i like don't even i'm like i mess up seven times before breakfast like that's fine not trying is like terrifying to me at this point and i don't think i've gotten there yet it's and, a coming and, and i'm and i'm and i'm trying to get there and i'm, I'm i want to get there um, and I feel like I'm I'm so close. But this like, does not have to be in the in the podcast at all. But I want to talk about my first Comic Con trip with you because it was like the sweetest. I don't even think you knew this. I was super depressed at this time, like depressed. I don't think that I had been able to like socialize or get out of bed, like as depressed for like weeks, and also in debilitating pain because I had this herniated disc in my neck that no one could figure out how to fix. So like standing, sitting for any period of time just fucking hurt. And so Julio and like free got me like this pass to Comic-Con. And so I was like, everything that I hate about life right now is involved in this process. People, um and standing and sitting but like julio's enthusiasm was so infectious i was like i have and i mean comic-con i was like i have to do this before i die and like whenever when am i ever gonna get this opportunity um and it was like the best experience i felt like a kid i was like the way that i describe depression is i can't act access my joy that's what it is like i remember being happy i remember the things that i liked i just can't find my way to enjoying those things and it was like the first time that i had like joy in such a long time um and it was from like and like you had no i don't think you had any idea um no but like you were like so sweet and so perfect and so excited about like everything we did um and i was I didn't even care that I was in pain. I was like, worth it. Every moment of this is like so worth it. Um, and I just left that experience thinking like you were the sweetest person to like just generously give me that experience um, with no idea that it was like so monumental for me. You let was just, just like who you are. Um, and I was like so thankful. And I still have my picture uh, with Stephen Amell. Mr. Amell, yep, who touched me. He co- gently caressed your chest. Yeah. And my lower back. And your lower back, yes. It was a day to remember, so thank you. I I didn't know all of that that story, and I'm, like, fighting every inch of me not to, like, quietly sob right now. Um, <laughs> so I, I very much appreciate that. It was the sweetest thing. I mean, thank you. I love you. I love you too, Travis. And thank all of you out there for listening to this episode of Objects in This Review. I am Travis Montez, reminding you that the only reason to take a look back is to see how far you've come. See you next time.